on today's show. Well, a real key to dropping barriers in any interaction, and this dynamic applies to being taken hostage and to to being in sales, mm-hmm. is not if you know their name, but if they know your name. Interesting, huh? And that's why, like, if you ever watch the TV show The Prophet with Marcus, I want to say his last name is Lemonis. Lemonis, yeah, yeah. I- I'm a big fan. He always he says, hi, I'm Marcus. Hi, I'm Marcus. Right. That's all he ever says. So your key for survivability in a hostage taking is do they know your, what your first name is? Hmm. And they, they, put, they put a gun to your head and they get ready to drag you off. You say, happy to go with you. You're in charge. I'm Eric. Hmm. And every time they try to get you to something, to do anything, you physically comply You'll look them in the eye and you repeat your name. I'm Eric. I'm I'm Chris. I'm Todd. Whoever it is. Mm-hmm. And the moment you go from being hostage number one to Eric, your chances of not just surviving but being treated much better have just now gone through the roof. Five, four, three, two, one, one. Welcome to the Creator Institute podcast. Your host. On today's episode, we have an incredible opportunity to talk to one of the the world's leading experts in hostage negotiation, Chris Voss. And the conversation is one that I would say really helped me think a lot about how we interact with others. Um, Chris has been involved in more than 150 um, hostage negotiations. He's had a 24-year career as one of the lead um, hostage negotiators for the FBI. He's also the the best-selling author of the book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. And what was really interesting about talking to, to Chris is you sort of understand the the process of taking the knowledge that he'd gained over a number of years as an FBI negotiator and realizing how he could apply it to so many other areas of real estate and sales negotiations and those sorts of things. And, and I think it's fascinating to, to recognize sort of the fact that when you are engaging with other humans, life's always a negotiation. And, and I found myself being curious about how you could apply these in a lot of different elements. He, uh, he even answered my question about what to do if you really are taken hostage, which, uh, which was sort of a fun part of the conversation. But Chris is someone who I think can teach a lot of us about the power of taking sort of hands-on knowledge and turning it into something that's applicable to lots of people. I think he was very surprised as he, he admits on the show just about the reach of what he's done. And his work has been profiled um, in a, dozens of talks, um, places from Google and, and, and the like. Um, and I think that he shares a lot about what it's like to reach out to strangers and to be able to get them to pay attention to you. Some of the things he learned about the human psychology and using empathy as an incredibly powerful tool. So Chris is, is an incredible interview. I think you'll, you'll love it. And uh, anyone that has the title negotiating as if your life depended on it in the subtitle, of their book has some interesting things to share. And so I'll post some other links at the end of this for some other of his interviews, because we didn't have enough time to cover all the things I wanted to, but it's a favorite for mine. And I think the hope is you get out of this, seeing some of the insights that you can gain from um, how to think about engaging with others in a way that you know really does create uh, leverage for, for those involved and some interesting outcomes. So Chris Voss, everyone, the author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. 
All right. I am super excited to have Chris Voss joining me. And uh, and I would tell you, Chris, I've sort of become a fan. I found myself watching uh, dozens and dozens of interviews and, and sessions you've had on YouTube and all over the place. And I feel like I'm a little bit like a fan now. And uh, and hopefully I can apply a few of the lessons that you share about better negotiating because I think the biggest, toughest negotiator I have is a toddler right now. So I'm going to apply <laughs> some of these things okay. to, uh, to, to that. So anyway, thanks a ton for, for spending some time with me. Yeah, uh, I'm honored. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, be a guest. You are welcome. You're welcome. So your background is fascinating. And I think your your stories are so interesting to tell uh, throughout the, the book that you've written. Um, but I'm just going to let you dive into it a little bit. You are sort of one of the sort of the heads of hostage negotiation and have had all sorts of amazing experiences over a long and decorated career. Um, but but I want to I want to hear a little bit about what is it like sort of on a day-to-day basis? Um, I wanted to hear what it's like on a day-to-day basis when you're not in the middle of a hostage situation. What the hell do you do when you're sort of waiting for that call to come in? All right. So, you know, that was, that was my old hostage negotiation life, um, running uh, all the responses to every American kidnapped anywhere in the world. You know, when I was in that, I mean, I was in it up to my eyeballs. Yeah. Um, there, was a, there wasn't a day that went by that I wasn't doing it because, you know, it was, it was enormously satisfying. So, but if something didn't happen to be cooking at the time, uh, you know, I breathed hostage <laughs> negotiation at the time. I, I can remember. And I was with the, and then I think one of the biggest keys to however far I got at any given point in time was being surrounded by like-minded people. Yeah. Um, which is almost a cliche, but, you know, when I was in a unit, uh, I was I was in I was in what was in fact a very a very handpicked unit that was led by uh, an extraordinarily revolutionary guy. Um, and towards the tail end of it, one of the first people that came in after he left um, that hadn't been picked by him. I remember she walked in the door and she was like, "She said, you guys breathe this stuff.'" <laughs> and we were like, "Yeah." Yeah, I mean, there isn't a moment we're not talking about it or enjoying it or thriving on it. I mean, sort of striving for that state of flow now, which we we know from this X Games athletes is actually a thing, like yep. what athletes would call being in the zone. Yep. And I, a book that I read recently called uh, The Rise of Superman, mm-hmm. which is about the state of flow, talking about how, you know, the natural brain chemicals that our brain produces and flow being the most addictive drug on the planet, more addictive than anything else. So when you're into what you can do and what speaks to you, um, you're in it all the time. I love it. You got to find, you know, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, you got to find some time ways to get away from it so you can recharge. But uh, if you love it, it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. So what was it like for me when I was doing it? I was doing it all the time. I was yeah. surrounded by guys who want to talk hostage negotiation, want to teach it, wanted to learn it, wanted to get better at it all the time. It was, yeah, it was the addictive state of flow. Was there anything growing up that that you th- you look back on and think uh, this? You know, were you someone who was negotiating to, for late bedtimes when you were growing up? Like, is there anything that like you, <laughs> like that, that said this is going to be my flow calling in life? Did you did you would, could you have known when you were young that you're looking back now that this was going to be it? Absolutely no idea. <laughs> I have gone searched my memory for indicators of this and. Uh, absolutely can't point like my mom does not say to me yeah i remember when you were a little kid you used to always want to try to get extra dessert or you know no no indicator of that whatsoever 
And you, you, I mean, to the point of living and breathing it, I think I read that you were uh, active in over 150 hostage negotiations throughout your career. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I swagged that number. You, do you know what a swag is? Yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Course, yeah, yeah. scientific I'm, I'm wild like, ass I'm guess. Li- licking my thumb and holding it up. That's the sort of the sign I think towards it's a, towards it's it. A swag, yeah, yeah. You know, I swagged that number low just because, yeah. You know, I f- I'm sure that it was much more than that. I, tr- I tried to guess based on the number of kidnappings I worked in Haiti, the number of kidnappings we had sim- going simultaneously at any given point of time, and the different sieges that I was in across the country. Um, and came up with that number, but yeah, it's 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 actually probably higher than that. But I'm, I feel safe with saying 150. That's good. It's, that's that's. Listen, I think you know 150 is is. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a lot. So I think anyone who's like ah, you know, what just 150? I mean, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> so before I dive in a little bit, I was curious about this. There's a ton of movies out there that the the central premise is some type of a hostage situation or or a kidnapping. Are there any sets of movies that you found to be the best? sort of approximation or they did the best job of sort of at least getting some elements or they all just crap to you. No, I mean, there's, there's pieces of, of films that are good. Like we used to show pieces of the movie, the negotiator with Kevin Spacey and Samuel mm-hmm. Jackson. Mm-hmm. I mean, they did a pretty good job overall capturing a lot of that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing that they got really wrong, there's a scene in, in that where Kevin Spacey says they're but in the command post, you know, from now on, all decisions go through me. You know, I'm the negotiator. All decisions go through me. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. As a hostage <laughs> negotiator, one of the things you learn, which is actually enormously empowering, is uh, commanders don't negotiate and negotiators don't command. Uh, and so when you take on an advisory role, it's, it's, it's very liberating because then when you're the most informed advisor in the room, you end up steering the situation. But because you're not obligated to be in charge, then when you're right. on the phone, it's also liberating because you're like, look, I can't make this deal. I'm the spokesperson. Yeah. Other than that, The Negotiator was a really good movie. I also liked from portraying the side of the bad guys in terms of kidnappings, Denzel Washington movie, Man on Fire, mm. did an, a good job of outlining the kidnapping industry from the bad guy's point of view. You know, they look at them as professionals, as businessmen. You know, not as bad guys, but as businessmen. And that happens to be the business that they're in. Mm, interesting. And, and that's, a, that's a fair depiction of the other side. Well, that's fun. Well, I, I always thought, you know, like it's sort of like those folks that are in whatever business, you know, there's all these people who talk about that's not how it happens. When uh, doctors who watch the show ER, I wondered how it was for you seeing some of these high pressure situations and being like, come on now. So it's good to know there's some truth in some of these that we can learn from. Some of them I would admit are pretty bad, but <laughs> you know, those two movies have got some good stuff. That's good. That's good. Now, you, you, I don't know if you knew this. So I am also from the, uh, the, the mean Midwest. I'm, I grew up in Omaha. So I know that you're from, from Iowa and, and got some of your early start in, uh, in Kansas city. So I have to ask is now a guy who's sort of bi-coastal. Do you miss anything from the Midwest here? Uh, it's not that I miss the Midwest. It's that I'm grateful and thankful that I that I grew up there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to think about it. I think the same thing. Yeah, and so that, that's how I feel about it. I, fi- I find the Midwest to be like one of the most accepting places on the planet. Like the standard, when, when you're from the Midwest, the judgment that people make, because people make judgments everywhere. Right. Um, the judgment that people make is, are, do you work? Will you pitch in and help? 
And if you're a worker and you'll pitch in, if you, it's a roll up your sleeves culture. If you're willing to roll up your sleeves and help out, we like you. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And if you're not, we don't have time yep. for you. Yeah. And I bet that probably plays into a lot, you know, if, you, if you're looking for anything in the history, in some ways that attitude is probably that point of like, you know, that you share, like being living and breathing and being in the flow of being a negotiator at hostage in the hostage world. It sort of does. That seems like that hard work focus, like don't take times off. You know, my parents both grew up on farms. Uh, there's no weekends when you're farming. So that kind of attitude, I think, pervades. It's cool. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So I want to, I would love for you to tell a little bit about, um, sort of your, your early stint is, you know, you got in, into the FBI and, and here you are, uh, getting into this elite world of, of, of hostage negotiation. And I read somewhere that like people believe that many of the hostage situations are sort of bank robber related and what you're telling, and, and you shared that that's actually farthest from the truth. You want to tell us a little bit about kind of what are the typical types of, uh, hostage situations that, that you worked on? Well, the, the bread and butter for hostage negotiation really is some sort of a domestic situation that um, is really a relationship gone bad and somebody's waving a gun around. Hmm. And that was one of the, the big watershed moments. Hostage negotiation across the country transitioned a couple of times. You know, the first the creation of it was really as a result of the, the 72 Munich Olympics where the Israeli athletes were murdered and people were worried about terrorist of, events worldwide. And, and there, there had been hostage takings and a need for hostage negotiation up to that point in time, but nobody was ever really addressing it until the terrorism thing raised its ugly head. You know, for example, the famous movie Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino, mm-hmm. there actually weren't any hostage. That was pre-hostage negotiation. There weren't any hostage negotiation hmm. teams at that point in time. They were just kind of making it up as they went along. Um, so, but what does that mean? What that means is everybody imagined they had to be prepared for terrorist events and that they needed bargaining skills. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then they found out that, all right, so we, we teach these guys bargaining, but bargaining's not, once we got a hostage negotiation team, bargaining situations aren't the bread and butter of what they're faced on a regular basis. They're really mm-hmm. faced more with crisis intervention. And then so slowly after everybody had hostage negotiation teams, they began to slowly learn that crisis intervention was or was really what was going on, and that then the reimagining, if you will, of hostage negotiation was really led by the FBI. My former boss, Gary Nessner, hmm. and a charismatic, uh, dynamic guy that actually kind of changed the face of negotiation worldwide. And the majority, uh, if not a, a significant amount, of the negotiation teams actually changed their names from hostage negotiation to crisis negotiation. Mm. And so, um, you know, I came into the game, if you will, you know, as the world was being remade into crisis negotiation, and that's where I learned it on a suicide hotline. And I really brought it back around to these crisis negotiation skills are just emotional intelligence. Mm. They're, They're highly sophisticated emotional intelligence. And in fact, it works phenomenally well in business yeah. situations. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and what was perhaps the one of the more the more interesting early experiences you had as a, as a negotiator? Any kind of sto- stories to tell to sort of give a picture of what it's like uh, to sort of be learning on the job? Um, well, uh, I, I got on the hostage negotiation team in New York uh, because I went volunteer to a suicide hotline. And I was just really sort of blown away about how enormously powerful those emotional intelligence skills were. And I thought, and, and on a suicide hotline, on the crisis hotline, not suicide, there's an interesting distinction. 
But uh, they said, look, you, sh- you don't need to be on a phone any longer than 20 minutes with any individual. And I remember thinking, like, 20 minutes? you got to be kidding me. Yeah. yeah. You know, on TV, they're on for hours. <laughs> right. But, you know, it, it's uh, empathy saves time. Tactical mm-hmm. empathy saves time. It gets stuff done faster. It's amazing how quickly you can get to the heart of the problem and get it resolved if you use this empathy, this tactical empathy thing. And so I thought, this stuff is just too, too powerful. I'm, we're doing turnarounds in 20 minutes. You know, let's start applying this to business and personal life. So I get this heavy grounding. And then lo and behold, shortly after I become a hostage negotiator, I do end up in a bank robbery with hostages. Really? Which is just this extraordinarily a bank robbery with hostages where there's negotiation happens across the entire country about once every 20 years. Really? It's that rare? In the entire country. It's extremely rare. And that's, your, that's one of your first, your first job, first times on the job. You're, that's what you're in the middle of. Right. Right. Oh, God. So yeah. I'm falling back on my training. You fall to your highest level of preparation. Mm-hmm. And so all my prep is suicide hotline stuff. And I just go into my suicide hotline process. Hmm. And I've got a bank robber surrendering to me about 90 minutes later when the five hours prior to that, there was no movement. I had taken over from another negotiator um, and it had been stalemated for a long period of time. And he'd been very, what we call instrumental, you know, very bargaining, very salesman, very, very pitching, trying to get the other side to listen as opposed to listening first. Mm -hmm. And there's actually an upside to that because if, if a, if a situation is stalemated for five hours, um, you're then you're then free to try tweak it a little bit because you, if it's stalemated, it's not going to go bad quickly. Right, right. That's the good thing about a stalemate is it's not on the verge of going bad. It's ah, yeah, yeah. there's no energy. Yeah, right. And so I, you know, I I I drop into my suicide hotline stuff, and I got a guy out ninety minutes later. Really? Yeah. And so then I then I start teaching it more. I start studying it more. I start learning the dynamics. Um, I was actually under observation by our full-time hostage negotiation unit at the time, although I didn't know it. They're watching how I react because mm. self-initiated, self-initiated a- action is a critical aspect of this. Mm-hmm. And they're just laying back to see if I start to run with this on my own without any encouragement. Because if I run with it on my own with no encouragement, then imagine what someone will do with encouragement. Mm. And that, that was a, a, one of the criteria, which I didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. And can I go out and teach it? Can I explain it? Can I not only do it, but can I break it down so other people can, can learn it as well? Mm-hmm. And then that process just continued to build on itself. And I wanted to get learn, get smarter and get better at it. And ultimately, then I start, start I'm determined that this stuff's got to work across the board. And yeah. that's kind of how I ended up at Harvard Law School going <laughs> through their negotiation. It's amazing. Did you start to see this in your day-to-day life? I mean, as you said, you live and you breathe it. Are you seeing this in how you're negotiating with, you know, the the mechanic who's fixing your car or the, you know, buying a home? Did you see these tactics applied in your own day-to-day life? Well, I was determined to apply them. Mm-hmm. And I was determined to apply them and find out what happened. And if it needed to be tweaked, find out why it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Like the old saying in hostage negotiation was, you know, these skills are phenomenal. Just don't use them at home. <laughs> My wife, my wife says the same thing. I was, I went to law school and she says, uh, it's phenomenal that, you know, to think this way, stop arguing like, like I'm a lawyer, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I remember thinking to myself, like, if this is just great human communication, why shouldn't I use it at home? Why shouldn't the people that are important to me in my life be the beneficiary of this stuff? If it's, 
if it's that effective. <laughs> so I thought, and then, then when it didn't work, I thought, all right, so what's the two millimeter tweak I got to make here to make, make it work? Cause if it's not working, yeah. then I'm re- then it's not that I'm the, the tools are wrong. It's that my read of the application of the tools has got to adjust. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was always determined just to, just to make it work. Cause if somebody's in the darkest hour that they're calling a crisis hotline to save their own life, and I can turn somebody around in 20 minutes, then who shouldn't be the beneficiary of that? Right. It's good for humanity, frankly. I mean, that's the, the it's one of those, those skills that it's interesting. You know, I, I think it's interesting. And, and both of us having been inside a, a college, there's oftentimes not a real emphasis on those types of communication and um, even things like teaching empathy and teaching listening skills and teaching communication skills. Uh, the the power of them is so huge. Yet we spend very little time, generally, um, teaching those tools. Yeah, exactly. So you you so after the FBI, you you get out and you're teaching these uh, sort of in these techniques and trainings. I, I want to talk about this sort of decision to to package it and turn it into a book. What was the you know what was sort of the the decision to say all right like. I've been out there, I've been sharing this sort of stuff. Now it's time to to actually share this in a much broader way. Well, I, I, from the moment I left the, the FBI, I mean, people were encouraging me to write a book. They mm-hmm. were saying like, look, this is going to be a game changer for you personally and professionally. You got to get a book out there. You got to get it out. You got, and I, and I thought, okay, well, I believe it's going to be a game changer. I just want to make sure that we've got a, a, we're really adding to the discussion. Right, right. Um, that we've got the process from A to Z, soup to nuts. So my teaching method at Georgetown was always making people negotiate, um, you know, proof of concept in the real world. Here's a set of skills. Here's how to apply them. Now go out and try this stuff. Yep. And I would, you know, I would take, I would take my students hostage, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like you can't pass a class if you don't <laughs> write a paper about how you tried this out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and then forcing people to do it, then, then they would be like, Holy cow, this, this worked. Yeah. You know, I, I'd get a lot of papers that would say, can you believe this actually worked? <laughs> and my first thought would be like, well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I teach, I teach a class at MBAs and I, on the first day, make them, I give them each a dollar and I make them go out and uh, turn that dollar into more value by trading and talking to people. And they come back and they're like blown away that like, oh my God, like I actually got more back. And I was like, duh, right? like, yes, like we know this stuff works. We just have to force you to do it. So it's, it's, uh, it's neat to see that happening. Wow, that's, a, that's a really interesting idea. I may steal that. <laughs> Anytime. It's all yours. All yours. It'll make them yeah, really but, uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but anyway, get, get, and so the interesting thing about teaching this in, in the real world also, too, was like there was there are eight, eight FBI hostage negotiation skills, the FBI eight, for lack of a better term. Now, when I came out, I was a thousand percent convinced that the skill that we called in hostage negotiation, open-ended questions, um, uh, that, w- that was really the primary primary applicable skill. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I read the book before I left uh, the FBI start with no yeah. uh, by a guy who became a friend named Jim camp mm-hmm. and the bread and butter of his system are what he opened into questions. He calls them interrogatives. And then while the word empathy doesn't appear anywhere in his book in layman's terms, he describes what in fact is empathy. He used to say your negotiation has to be set in your adversary's world or you won't be successful. And that is, by definition, empathy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He just didn't learn it and study empathy, so it wasn't in his vernacular. Right. 
But I was I thought then the rest of the FBI eight skills, actually the one that I thought was the least important was what we referred to in hostage negotiation as emotion labeling. Mm. We have found out since that the one that I thought was the least important is actually the most powerful. We call it labels. And we found it out through this laboratory, which was my course, and then interaction with the students and a lot, a lot of discussions back and forth. And I can remember a very specific moment because we believe that there's three types of individuals. Your default caveman type is either fight, flight, or make friends. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the flight type is what we refer to as the analyst. And me as a fight type, I find them enormously dr- emotionally draining. That's the, mm-hmm. Those guys drive me crazy. <laughs> And the question was, all right, so how do I, as an assertive, if if every word out of my mouth puts you off, how do I, as an assertive, negotiate with you effectively? Hmm. And I remember we we pitched a specific question to a group of analysts, and I remember one of them goes like, ah, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe labels? And that was like, bang. Hmm. It was a total epiphany. I was like, that's it. Exactly. And we began to dis- take a deeper dive into labels and the application. And they're actually the perfect substitute for the open-ended question. And in many cases, we've even had some real estate people tell us that the labels open the floodgates for truth-telling. Hmm. And we've seen it backed up. There was, a, uh, there was a recent article about what's the best way to interrogate terrorists, whether it's is it harsh interrogation or is it the rapport-based interrogation that the FBI has always been a thousand percent supporter of? And there's finally data now out there. And one of the conclusions from this data study, a rigorous, academically acceptable uh, study, they described rapport-based empathy is the closest thing to true serum that law enforcement has. Hmm. And when you lie, and I know what that means because I've had people in business say, the skill unlocks the floodgates of truth telling. Right. That's another way of saying giving someone truth serum. How do you open up the truth as if you've given them a serum? Mm. And it's it's through this tool of labels, which I didn't even think was important when I first started this journey in, in the business world. And tell, give a, give us sort of a, a tactical example of, of labels. Uh, you know w- where you know whether you want to uh, negotiate with me or you just don't generally talk about it, what's the way that 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 tool as effective in, as a negotiation trick in life? Well, all right. So I'll put it, I'll put it in a couple of different contexts. I, and the one context that the person stated this for us was in showing open houses mm. to potential real estate clients. Mm-hmm. And somebody walks through an open house, you let them in, you point some stuff out, and they walk around, they look around at stuff. And typically a real estate agent um, uh, will say, well, what did you think? Which is, you know, a, a good open-ended question should start with the word, either what or how. Mm -hmm. Those are the two critical words. And Mm -hmm. so what did you think should be a good question? And they would get, well, you know, uh, we saw a couple of things we liked. And they get a short answer and a person would leave. Because the the, the mere construction of a question causes people to hesitate in their response. Mm -hmm. Interesting. To some degree, regardless. Yep. Some people, they become enormously hesitant. Some people only slightly hesitant. But the, something about the construction of that and the way it hits the emotional architecture in the brain. So the same real estate agent I'm teaching labels, and the same person walks out, and they look at him, and they say, seems like you saw some stuff you liked, which is just a label. Seems like. Mm. 
They're labeling a dynamic. Mm, interesting. And when they say that, instead of getting a short, well, we saw this and that, people go, oh, yeah, we saw this and we saw this and we're thinking about this room for our kids hmm. and we got a dog or we're thinking about this room for the kids we hoping to have. Interesting, yeah. And literally the floodgates of truth-telling is unlocked. Just with that simple tweak. And there's something about the specific design of the label as I expressed it that bypasses some of the barriers to response and gets straight into a thought process where the floodgates are opened up. Mm -hmm. uh, the other important thing about this is, because a lot of people are taught active listening, and they're taught to say, well, what I'm hearing is... Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Now, I've heard there's that. two things wrong with that. The, the word what is involved... And I. And the word I is involved. Yep. Yeah. And both of those words hit the brain in a different way. Huh. And the label, as we teach them, drops both of those words out very intentionally. And the simplicity of the design is actually can actually be, be, be misleading because the simplicity of the design is designed to get past barriers and thought patterns. So my, my wife often jokes, we travel periodically internationally. We've traveled to some places that are a little rough. She's always like, uh, she's always role playing with me. Now, what do we do, do if we're getting a hostage situation? So how do I apply that if, if the, the, the terrible comes true and, and my wife forever right? Like, what, how do you apply that then in a situation that's more intense? Like not showing a house, but now you are in a place that's like sort of uncomfortable and, and you're, you're, you're in that situation. Well, a real key to dropping barriers in any interaction, and this dynamic applies to being taken hostage and to to being in sales mm -hmm. is not if you know their name, but if they know your name. Interesting. Huh. And that's why, like, if you ever watch the TV show, The Prophet with Marcus, I want to say his last name is Lemonis. Lemonis? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan. He always, he says, hi, I'm Marcus. Hi, I'm Marcus. Right. That's all he ever says. So, your key for survivability in a hostage taking is do they know your, what your first name is? Hmm. And they, they put, they put a gun to your head and they get ready to drag you off. You say, happy to go with you. You're in charge. I'm Eric. Hmm. And every time they try to get you to something to do anything, you physically comply. You'll look them in the eye and you repeat your name. I'm Eric. Hmm. I'm, I'm Chris. I'm Todd, whoever it is. Mm -hmm. And the moment you go from being hostage number one to Eric, your chances of not just surviving, but being treated much better have just now gone through the roof. Wow. That's amazing. It's, and it's, it, you know, you're it, at the core, even if we see these folks as adversaries, be it in a hostage negotiation or as in a sales set scenario, right at the core, we're humans. And I think that like when we cut these things down to humans, as opposed to transactions or numbers, it does change the whole dynamic. I'm just like now replaying through times where I, I've felt good when someone says your, their name to you, you're like, or, you, or yeah. your name, it's just, it's a, you're right. Like it's a simple thing. And I think in some ways we lose sight of the importance of saying someone's name yeah 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 and or or uh, again it's do they know your name like yeah uh, right. another real estate guy i was coaching a while back he says he says we got problems people not return our phone calls and not return our emails and he said but and i make so much effort to get to know them and i said that's exactly what you're doing wrong mm. and he, he goes what i go say that again because i make a i make a lot of effort to get to know them I said, yeah, and that means that they're not getting to know you. Hmm. <laughs> and he went like, oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> they know, yeah, he's all his effort on getting to know them 
And he never went from being business person to Todd. Right, right, right. You're, you're, you're sort of a, you know, it's, it's, as I shared with you before, I was a lawyer at one time. And I always found that to be really interesting is that if I didn't introduce myself as a lawyer, because I found it was never valuable, if they knew me as Eric, and then I happened to be a lawyer at the time when I was practicing, it was much more valuable than the uh, other way around. And I think it's, I, I never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. It's uh, labels can have the sort of the, the inverse effect when they label you as that role, as opposed right. to as a human that you, who you are. Fascinating. Right. Super right. interesting. Yeah. It changes everything. And so I want to talk a little bit about the the book and and it's you know I mean it's, in some ways I think it's been one of these things that has uh it's brought you to a lot of places. What is I mean you've got over a thousand reviews. Did you ever kind of anticipate this book would have this kind of a a sort of is hit this kind of a seam in the in the in the world when you were when you were publishing it? No, you know I I, I you know you, of course you hope uh you have a very high hope for it. Mm -hmm. Um and to the to the process up into like when we when we, when my agent put the book out there, I expected very little response mm -hmm. in terms of publishers, because um, a, a lot of people, you know, people human beings are trained to be naysayers. Yes, and so you know, I came across some agents that were like, "Hey, you know, there's a thousand books on the market." Or my agent actually, he said, "I'm I'm not sure what kind of a reception we're going to get domestically, but this FBI stuff." is really popular overseas and I, I know I can get you a lot of a lot of book deals overseas, which he did. Mm -hmm. Guy's name is Steve Ross and Steve is a phenomenal agent. I've been so happy with Steve. But we did not expect like that there would be this this <laughs> much appetite. Yeah. Or that it would be this different. Or even even that people would read it and they would be like, holy cow, I I made a difference today and mm -hmm. I've only read the first chapter. Yeah. And, a, and an awful lot of that had to do with my co-writer, Tal Raz, being an extraordinary writer. Mm -hmm. But no, we didn't, we didn't expect that it would hit as hard as it hit or that it would really meet a need that nobody knew was there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, and we see that consistently. Like, I'll t I'll, if I approach somebody about speaking at their conference, they'll, they'll be like, ah, our membership's not asking for negotiation. You know, that's not on their list of ass. Right. And then I'll walk in the door and it'll be standing room only. Yeah. And it'll be like, holy cow, we didn't expect this. Like the first major conference I spoke at, initially they're going to put me in a room that would only hold about 100. And then they started getting uh, uh, um, interest expressed in an overwhelming fashion. It was a conference that had 6,000 people. They put me in a room that could hold 500. <laughs> And then when it would, they shut the doors because they thought the fire marshal was going to get mad at them because so many people were standing in the room. And they came up to me afterwards and they said, we could have filled the room with 750 people. And they had no idea because they, they regularly surveyed their, their, their attendees and nobody ever said anything to them. They wanted anything about negotiations. Right. So they, it was understandably, they had no idea the appetite was there. So mm -hmm. It's understandable why pe nobody knew that the appetite was there this strong for it, but it's hit really hard. It's, I think one of the things that I would say just because there is a bunch of books like Getting to Yes and Getting to Maybe, and, and there's a lot of those ones out there. I, I think one of the things that I found interesting about it, and, and again, I've taken some negotiation classes in college and law school, it's interesting that you have some contrarian sort of perspectives. And I think that was one of the things that was interesting. I mean, I think even, you know, you're, you say some, some things that sort of stand out to people like, you know, people are not rational and there's sort of, and, and like, don't look to compromise and, and sort of these things. 
what is what is it about those elements that that I think they're so important in negotiators that people think about that, that sort of is contrary to the popular perspectives? Yeah, well, um, yeah, the popular perspectives, like getting to yes, which is, has always sort of been everybody's standard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, you can't, it's intellectually sound. Right. People are rational. Yep. And if you're, if you've studied negotiation and, you know, on the one hand, reading that book is like reading the dictionary. I mean, if, <laughs> yes, if, you, yes. if you need, if you need to fall asleep at night, try to read that book. <laughs> Super boring. But, and so, but you can read it in small doses and it's, and you cannot challenge rationally anything in it. And I, and I can remember hand, you know, when I, when I read it and handed it to some of my hostage negotiators, they were going like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. And not one of them could apply it. Not one. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody who said, you know, I, while I was reading to getting to yes, I turned around and I made a great deal because of it. Not, mm-hmm. I, nobody's ever, that's not to say that there are people out there that ha- could say that. It's just none of them ever said it to me. And I've spoken to a lot of people. But, in, in, and I met Roger Fisher. And he was in an he was in an academic environment. Roger Fisher's emotional intelligence is actually through the roof. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but because of an he was an academic, they had to write a book that con, that right. conformed to their academic environment, which is all about rationality. Yeah, and human beings, and I still get arguments from people about how that they're rational and they're not emotional. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, I can I can run a couple exercises with them that prove that that's not true. And then the best I can get out of them, they're like, okay, so nobody else, everybody else is emotional, but I'm the one rational person. Yeah, yeah sure, sure, that's right, sure. but not me. Yeah, so, you know, so, all right, so if you're rational, everybody else is emotional. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole different set of rules. And if it is a different set of rules, the best tools are tools that were designed from the original prem- premise that people aren't rational, which is hostage negotiation tools. Hmm. That's amazing. So, so what's, what, what is, what has been the thing that's, um, you know, you've had, you've been invited to speak tons of different places. What has been some of the, th- the, the most surprising thing that's happened as a result of publishing this book? Because it is, I mean, basically there's certain things I don't even bother asking because I would just share people. There's like so many great interviews of you out there. What's the thing that surprised you the most in this, uh, sort of <laughs> adventure uh, of publishing your book? I, you know, I've been r- really surprised about how people in different industries, Somebody smart will pick it up and just start hitting home runs right away. Hmm. Um, and not everybody can do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're collaborating. My company's collaborating with a, a company uh, called Node, which is an artificial intelligence company that's backed by Mark Cuban. Mm-hmm. And uh, the CEO is Fallon Fatme. And Fallon's brilliant. And she's the new face of the, of the, of the not just the American CEO, but the international CEO. Mm-hmm. Young, dynamic, brilliant beautiful woman who can be a kick-ass business person and not sacrifice her femininity to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen, I saw it more in law enforcement and I think it probably happened in the business world too, is women were coming up in the executive ranks in law enforcement. They thought they had to be men mm-hmm. and act like men. And it was against their nature and it, it consumed them and they weren't successful by it. And one of the things that I'm really encouraged about by these days is women can show that they can be ridiculously successful and not need to be one of the guys. And Fallon is one of those people. Um, and she started applying it immediately to their recruiting emails. Hmm. And they went from getting zero response in their recruiting emails because coders and engineers in Silicon Valley are the rock stars. Everybody yeah. wants them. So you'll send out an email to somebody that you want to recruit and they just won't answer. Yeah. And they went from getting zero response on their emails to getting an 80% response rate 
just by applying the stuff from the book. And I didn't, I didn't, it's a negotiation book. It's not a recruiting right. manual. Right, exactly. But she's using it as a recruiting manual. Yeah, the principles apply to Or yeah. the real estate people are using it in real estate or the salespeople are using it in sales. Mm-hmm. You know, all you got to do is be open to new ideas and you immediately begin to see application of the ideas in your work. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I want to, so that's a great segue on that. I want to ask you a question on that one. So a lot of the people that are, are watching this or, or that I'm teaching, um, one of the biggest things that I, I teach people, particularly when they're creating their own book or they're creating a podcast or whatever it is, is one of the biggest things is they have to get strangers to talk to them. <laughs> so there's this process of, you know, reaching out to a CEO of a company to, to interview for your book or to talk to you about whatever it is. What are some of the, tips that you are techniques that you would give to someone to sort of be able to be more successful at uh, engaging with strangers, being able to connect with people, making those sorts of connections more personal, more meaningful. How, how would you think about teaching someone to sort of uh, be more successful at opening themselves up to, to meet new people and, and people you want to meet? Um, well, yeah. And, and I'll, I'll teach you from the other side because I'm getting constantly approached these days. Yeah. And if somebody approaches me like, hey, Hire me. Give me. You know, I thought it'd be. I thought it'd be nice to connect. Yep. If they start with an ask, right? And and every now and then I'll say, okay, well, sure, happy to help you out. You know what? You know, but lay something of value on the table for me. Anything, right? And well, and if their answer is like, well, I'm what's of value, and I'm making myself <laughs> available to you. Yeah. Like if I see if anybody approaches me with any idea whatsoever of what I might find valuable, it's interesting. Like if I get an email back that says, you know, I loved your book and I gave you a five-star review on Amazon. Hmm. I'm like, oh, interesting. Hmm. You, you went first. Yeah. You risked getting nothing in return. And you were smart enough to take an educated guess on what might be valuable to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, ah, now I'll talk to you. So if you even try to offer me, do anything for me first, my latitude to, towards you, the amount of rope I'm willing to give you, and the benefit of that I'll give you is a thousand times more <laughs> than what if I than than somebody who just approached me with a cold ask. Yep. Yep. Like you know, my asset is me, and I'm making me available to you. Right. With no thought whatsoever of even even asking if there's something they could do for me. Yep. Yeah. That makes it. That makes it a thousand percent. I mean, I I I get an email today from someone who appears to have great negotiation credentials in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And her approach was, I'm, I'm valuable. I'm making myself available to you. Yeah. Oh, I don't even know that I'm going to respond to that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Have you, have you seen the, the, uh, the Adam Grant Ted talk, um, on givers and takers? I'm a huge Adam Grant fan and I have not seen that Ted talk. It reminds me a lot of what he premises in there. The TED Talk is short. It's only like 12 minutes, I think, maybe. But there's a section in there that I use a lot that reminds me exactly of this called the five-minute favor. And what what it talks about is exactly that. that like too many people ask first and then uh, sort of like hope to hope that like the other person on the other side is just generous by, by proxy. And so what he says is like, listen, just do a five minute favor for someone. Like you said, uh, leave them a review, donate to their charity, write to something like, so what I, so I use a lot of that exact same things of like, just be thoughtful, like first. And you know, if it at least will open the door of them to pay attention to you, particularly if they're, they're busy. And so I think there's something psychologically that, uh, Adam Grant sort of leads this world of like givers, takers, and matchers. And what I shared with the students is if almost what you said there is if, if you start out as a, as a taker, hey, I want something, you basically shut yourself off from 75% of people 
who are either matchers or, or takers. And maybe you get lucky one in four times with the giver. And in this case, if you start out with a, here, I did something first, at least you flip that to where 75% of people should at least be receptive to you. So sort of interesting, interesting um, sort of psychological background based on that exact response you gave. Yeah, good point. Yeah, very well said. I don't know if it was well said. I just stole it straight from Adam Grant, who I think sounds like both of us are fans of. So kudos to Adam. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, well, you know, I remember hearing a saying a while back, the only, the only person to ever claim to have a truly original thought was Adam. That's good. There you go. It's good. Now we got it right there. I love it. I love it. Well, I want to, I want to be respectful of your time and wrap up with a couple quick fast ones for you um, that I like sure. to ask. So first off, I think just to, to plug it, I love this book and uh, I'm a, a fan and, uh, and I'm going to start basically uh, recommending more pieces of it to my students. Cause I do think you're absolutely right. Like there's a sense here of applying it and, uh, and, and using it as a way to open doors, which I think is great. So kudos, kudos to that. And God, God love you. Any book that has over like a thousand five-star reviews uh, must have something in it that's worth reading. Yeah. Thank you very much. Let's end on one last thing. What's the, uh, what's the one piece of advice for someone negotiating salary that you give? Uh, take your focus off salary and put it on to the success of the company and they'll never be able to pay you enough. Interesting. It's great. I think it's a, it's especially for people early on. I think they, uh, it's a short term play to think about salary versus like, what are you going to learn? And that learning will turn into more value down the road. Uh, and if I can real quickly, a friend of mine, small, another small town boy from Iowa, his name is Tom McCabe and he's the head of the U S for the development bank of Singapore. So it's an international bank and he's the head of country in the U S Tom um, has uh, from nowhere to the head of a, international bank has always focused on he said in every in every job review and in every interview he's ever had how can i be guaranteed to be involved in projects that are critical to the strategic future of the company Hmm. yeah which gives him he's in the middle of stuff that matters all the time yeah he's got visibility with the highest echelons of the company he his success is their success now, he hasn't had a perfect career. Nobody does. Right. But he's the most successful person that of, of the people that I know well. His success is insane. On top of that, by he, everybody that works for him are always involved in sh- critical projects. And interestingly enough, he's got a reputation in his industry. He plays, pays slightly less in the top of the market he's not a top payer hmm. and he retains people longer than anybody else in his industry because they love working for him so much yeah yeah so it's all about future creating future and if you're focused on creating future it's not infallible nothing is but it's the highest success rate of anything out, out there that i've seen yeah i give i give a, a very similar piece of advice i think right on with that and say don't necessarily pick the i mean Pick a great company, but more pick the person you want to work for and the projects you want to work on. And if you can make sure that you've got sort of the the person who's going to mentor you and help give you challenging projects, you're way more likely, especially early in your career, to actually grow to get the next. You want to sort of make sure you're thinking about these early jobs as investments that are going to basically, you know, be exponentially valuable yeah. as opposed to like sort of incrementally valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I think that's great advice. I love it. Well, Chris, this is so awesome. I appreciate your time so much. And uh, I hope that we can uh, continue to have these kind of conversations. And uh, like I said, I'm a big fan of this one. And and uh, I'm going to make part of this uh, part of this required reading for uh, for my students who have to negotiate with people to, to get them in their books or a podcast or whatever it is, because I think those types of skills just aren't taught enough. My pleasure. And yeah, we will continue these conversations. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. 